Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in erotal science. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Eric Powell from Archaeology Magazine, discussing archaeology and the movies. Also, we'll find out how Angel Falls got its name. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, have you been to any good conferences lately? You know, I've, I've, there's so many conferences out there that we just love to attend yeah. every year. It's like a party. <laughs> it's like a party every year. <laughs> but I think by far, at least my favorite conference to attend is the Society for Neuroscience Conference. Ah, Society for Neurosciences. Yes, indeed. Cool. It's all those um, brainiacs, huh? Indeed. The brainiacs uh, showing their wits. <laughs> In the fine city of New Orleans. Mm-mm. Nolens, as they say. Ah. Yes, I've uh, read quite a lot about this in the news recently. Right, indeed. Uh, it was the uh, annual Society for Neuroscience Conference, which uh, I was out there luckily attending on the uh, Society's behest as press. Excellent, excellent. So uh, what interesting stuff have you heard about over there? There's all kinds of really cool stuff going on in the neurosciences uh, this uh, this week, at least, and uh, this year. Uh-huh. And among those, I guess we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of them that uh, came out. But, uh, yeah, just sort of as a roundup, it looks like uh, there's kind of a lot of cool things. I mean, people are doing a lot of stuff with neural prostheses nowadays. Oh, neural prostheses. Yeah, so hopefully... So what's that like? Is that prostheses where you can feel your limbs? Yeah, actually, at this point right now, it's uh, just developing devices that can uh, read out motor outputs. So, for instance, uh, oh, okay. being able to control a robotic arm with your brain or something like that. Oh, okay. So, as yet, there's no real closed-loop system, although some people are actually trying to develop that. Oh, so you can get sensation back into the... Right. Into the brain. Right, so that you can actually feel where the muscle is. And wow. Yeah. It's kind of create the Terminator. Right, huh? right. <laughs> Some cool work being done on sleep right now. Sleep? Sleep, yeah. Where uh, people are seeing uh, certain types of uh, benefits that it has from memory and uh, actually the chemicals are involved right now. So we should get, what, full eight hours every night? <laughs> at, at the very least, sir, you should be getting as much as you need. Ah, uh, as you I, need. I guess so listen the, to your body, right? Listen to your body and do what it takes. And uh, anyway, a lot of cool things. Some some work on the interaction of senses, so how vision can inter- uh, interact with hearing, you know, improve a sense of something. So they're not really independent in, in, when it goes on in your brain? No, no. Apparently uh, many of the senses interact uh, in quite profound ways to actually either enhance or suppress certain types of uh, stimuli. This is like a correlation effect somehow because, uh, like, say, a sound and a, and a vision are associated right. so well together. Right, that's part of it as well. I yeah. see. 
So kind of cool things and a lot of other things and, and of course, some, some interesting stories that came uh, out. Real uh, progress, then. Real progress, I suppose. Uh, so another interesting piece of work that was done uh, out there by a group, uh, Paul Zack and his colleagues at uh, Claremont Graduate University, uh-huh. they, they apparently said that they showed the uh, chemical basis for trust. Chemical basis for trust? Yes. Wow. So. I can use that against my enemies. <laughs> And and uh, make yourself more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Yes. See, had I known what the chemical basis for trust was, I think I might have done a lot better on uh, Bourbon Street when I was out there. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, unfortunately, you look like Steven Seagal. I know. Problem. Apparently, uh, the beads were not enough. <laughs> it seems like I needed a certain chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin. To gain the trust of. Isn't that one of the uh, pheromones associated with uh, people mating and becoming uh, familiar with each other? Right, right, exactly. So uh, it's it's apparently a, a major hormone in a variety of animals. Uh-huh. And uh, what a group of researchers show that in humans it actually seems to correlate with people trusting one another. Okay, so they've discovered the actual uh, physical presence of this oxytocin between right, humans. Right, so what they did is they did a... Um, a very simple kind of test. They actually took two students, uh-huh. did like a little monetary test where they would give the two students some money, right. and one would have to send the money to another person, right. and then they would have to trust the other person to send some of it back, right? Ah. And it would be doubled or tripled depending on how much it was. Right. So the more one student trusted another, uh-huh. uh, and they drew the blood out, they measured the oxytocin level, and they found that the more the person seemed to trust the other person, then in fact uh, the oxytocin level would rise. Really? So does this oxytocin uh, transmit between people, or is it an internal... Uh... It's apparently an internal signal, okay. and I guess it's released when, or as a signal of trust being I formed. I see, I see. But apparently it's it's just sort of a signal of trust, and uh, people can apparently suppress it, because if one student who had a very high-level oxytocin, mm. indicating that he had a high-level trust, right. didn't send any money back to his... Uh, partner, uh-huh. just saying, well, he knew what he should have done, but he just suppressed it. <laughs> so even though it may ride, oxytocin may signal that you're trusting somebody, you can actually be deceitful, it seems. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So you think they can measure oxytocin as, say, a possible lie detector? Uh, I'm not sure how it correlates with truthfulness, but right. presumably, uh, uh, I, w- I would guess that probably... Trustworthiness. The trustworthiness, yeah. Probably they're... The lower uh, oxytocin <laughs> levels, but anyway, it's kind of cool. So, uh, is there any article that might oh, yes. uh, explain this a little bit more? Yeah. So this was work that was recently reported at the uh, annual meeting of Society for Neuroscience. So it should be out in press soon. Okay. Cool. Okay. So I guess we're continuing our neuro streak this Indeed, week. Indeed. Uh, celebrating the exciting developments in neuroscience and the brain. So, Charles, are you afraid of anything? Fear of many things. Uh, the dark, my reflection. <laughs> or lack of. <laughs> or lack of, yeah. <laughs> Garlic, I guess. <laughs> Steaks through the heart. But you know what? There might be some pill that could uh, get rid of your fears one of these days. Oh, is that right? Yes. So some researchers from uh, Emory University are experimenting with uh, D-cycloserin. D-cycloserin. What's that? Uh, it sounds like uh, an uh, amino acid derivative, but apparently it, it enhances the activity of glutamate receptors. Oh, okay. The neuroreceptors in your brain. Okay. And they believe that if you increase the activity of this particular receptor, it also uh, helps you to unlearn fear. Ooh. So activities that cause you to feel fear could be delinked if you increase the activity of this particular uh, receptor. Oh, I see. So uh, they have a particular compound then that's able to uh, right. enhance the activity right. of this receptor. And this is actually the first known compound that uh, they think they could be used for therapy rather than the actual treatment of an illness. Oh, wow. So what they did in these experiments was they got people who had a fear of heights uh-huh. 
uh, and they had them take uh, this uh, compound, uh, cycloserin, and then what they did was they watched a virtual reality movie of them going up uh, a flight <laughs> of elevators. Okay. And uh, for a lot of p- some of the people who had the fear of heights, after like three or four sessions, they were able to get rid of this fear. Oh. I learned this fear. That's uh, that's that's amazing, in fact. Yeah, so this may be actually a better treatment than, say, Valium or one of those anti-anxiety drugs right. that are on the market. Because those things, you, you know, you have to keep taking them. It's not like a thing where you unlearn something. Right, right. So that, that's kind of cool. So basically, uh, you can you can just basically take this compound, unlearn the fear. Right. And uh, then you won't have to take it anymore. Yeah. That's too bad, because Valium's so much more fun. <laughs> Stuff, huh? uh, yeah. Well, that, that's that's exciting. So, can you can is it just affecting fear memories, or does it affect uh, all types of memories? Do uh, they know? I think for some reason it seems to um, target particularly just the fear, oh. the fear factor. The fear factor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. So now we can go on the show and like win uh, all kinds of money there. Oh yeah. So if anyone wants to know more, they can go to a recent issue of Science. All right, and uh, further news, I guess, from the Society for Neuroscience conference out there and uh, mm, having to do... Stuff. Yeah, it is, indeed. So, do you like singing? In the rain? Singing in the rain. Yeah, especially when I watch a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about singing songs that you learned when you were a little kid? Uh, every once in a while, yeah. I seem to have these uh, tunes pop into my mind, and sometimes I might be humming, but yeah, it's you... pretty much unconscious, I think. <laughs> it's I don't spider. do it, uh, something like that. <laughs> Well, it turns out birds have a very important uh, use for these uh, songs. Really? Yeah, they use them to communicate, especially amongst themselves as adults. Right. I thought they were also mating calls, right? They are mating calls as well. Uh-huh. Uh, the interesting thing is that birds basically learn their song when they're little kids, little birdlets. Right. Chicks. <laughs> is that a word, birdlets? I'm not birdlets. sure. Chicklets? Chicklets. <laughs> Isn't that like a gum or something? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, maybe chicklets learn some songs as well. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though. These chicks, they learn a certain type of song when they're young, mm-hmm. and uh, then they repeat the song when they become an adult about a year later. Oh. And so for a long time, apparently, uh, neuroscientists have been trying to find particular neurons in the brain that have a complete recollection of a song, right? So that mm-hmm. will respond to the entire song. So wouldn't this suggest that the song is actually transmitted from one generation to the next? Or it's not imprinted in your memory or in your brain before right. you're born. Right. It's, sur- it's not a uh, sort of nature thing. It's kind of a nurture I aspect see. where they're basically trained. They learn the right. they learn the song. And there's some variation in it as well. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing is that people who are looking for like a neural correlate or a particular set of neurons in the brain that learn the song right. haven't been able to find one set of neurons that learn an entire song, uh-huh. but they've only found cells that respond to particular parts of the song. Oh, so really? a little like the chorus or the refrain you could think of as right. So this kind of confused researchers for a while, but uh, it's kind of interesting that a group of researchers from the University of Utah, led by Gary Rose, have found out that uh, birds basically build up a song from the different parts. Oh, okay, so they compose their own song from these little riffs or whatever. Right, exactly. So uh, essentially that's what they, they showed is that they they were able to train uh, birds with like little riffs, little uh-huh. pieces of song. And uh, just little pieces of song, and the birds later on would recompose them into a new and novel song. Oh, I see. Something that's not even heard in nature. Wow. So they could take little chicks and teach them, you know, the equivalent of Metallica, I guess, <laughs> as opposed to the classical whatever song that they hear, yeah. And uh, they'd, they'd recompose something that was quite similar. Interesting. Yeah. So it suggests that perhaps these little neurons that they find that code only little riffs in the brain mm-hmm. are just being used to compose the new song 
in a in a novel way rather than storing wow. the song so as a memory. We're not the only ones who are creative then. Apparently not. Those those chicks uh, and chicklets <laughs> <laughs> have a lot to teach us, it seems. To the fat bird thing. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so it's quite a quite a fascinating uh, little thing and it's uh, something to think about the next time you're humming a tune, I guess. And uh, this is also presented at the Society for Neuroscience and uh, can be seen in a summary on the science website. Well, I guess we're going to round off the uh, stories with one more All right. <laughs> neuro story. And um, this is actually related more to, uh, to health. Um, so what some scientists uh, have found out is that soy supplements, ah. uh, especially uh, the ones which contain high levels of isoflavones, okay. may actually reduce uh, sexual activity. That's not necessarily a good thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what they've done is uh, they experimented on rats and gave them these supplements levels which be similar to what uh, a lot of women take. Okay. Uh, so it turns out these isoflavones are quite similar in estrogen. Women take them as uh, supplements oh, for uh, you know, estrogen replacement therapy. Okay. In these rats, what they found is that a lot of their, um, their sexual activity was reduced by up to 70%. Ooh, intriguing. <laughs> yeah, so it's the whole idea of eating uh, these supplements is controversial and this sort of adds more, uh, more fuel to the fire that it may not be such a idea. Right, right. So, why, again, why were the uh, women taking these uh, supplements to begin with? It's just a hormone replacement therapy? Right. So, instead of uh, synthetic hormones, I which see. Uh, they found out to cause cancer, they thought this natural uh, alternative right. would be uh, much better, but it seems to have uh, various side effects that people are not fully uh, fully uh, characterized yet. Huh. Well, that's, uh, that's I guess, certainly, uh, I guess, the impetus to find better uh, supplements, yeah. or at least uh, prevent the, uh, the reduction of the natural hormones that are there. Mm-hmm. Oh, or so just get more exercise. I guess so. <laughs> uh, well, I guess that explains why uh, it's either the oxytocin or the isoflavones now that I guess we're explaining my lack of uh, abilities on Bourbon Street ah. there this uh, <laughs> this past week at the Society for Neuroscience meeting. But I still think it's your Steven Seagal look. <laughs> you just look too tough. Is that all? Yeah. I I thought that was supposed to be the big draw. <laughs> but how was I supposed to know? Uh, needed more beads, I think. Mm, Definitely more, more beads. beads. Yeah. You can check this out in a recent issue of Science, or uh, there's another summary in The New Scientist. Well, I guess that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Eric Powell will join us to tell us about archaeology and the movies, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, when we think of archaeology, the first thing that pop into many people's mind is Indiana Jones, the excitement 
and the adventure, but in reality, archaeology can be a uh, mundane job. It is also a well-developed science in which defined criteria have been developed for the digging and preservation of artifacts. Well, joining us today to talk about the differences in how archaeologists are perceived in the movies and what they do in real life is Eric Powell. He is the associate editor of Archaeology Magazine. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Not a problem. So first of all, could you perhaps tell us when archaeologists started appearing in the movies? Really rich tradition of archaeologists being featured in movies. Uh-huh. Um, it goes back to, oh gosh, I think <laughs> 1930 was the first time a, an archaeologist showed up in a movie. Oh, really? It was, yeah, it was a Swedish movie. The name escapes me, but um, I haven't seen it. But, but there are at least, uh, I think, actually a scholar has, uh, has done a filmography, an archaeologist, and counted over 150 movies that have archaeologists as either main characters or you know playing a, so a significant role in the plot. So, mm-hmm. so there are plenty of movies to talk about. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, pr- probably the most important in the early part of the century was uh, The Mummy, uh, the 1932 movie, which I think most people have probably seen. Oh, the original? The original movie, yeah. Okay. Um, not, the, uh, not the sequel to the uh, copy of the original, huh? Right. Well, there, there have been numerous sequels, um, some of which feature archaeologists, some you know, feature archaeologists to a lesser degree. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but the first one really did sort of get get the ball rolling, and it sort of played. It, it, you see a lot of themes introduced into uh, sort of into mainstream movie making in this movie. The biggest one I say is probably the, this uh, this idea of a curse of archaeologists, you know, violating a tomb and activating a curse that mm-hmm. falls down on everyone around them. And it's a theme that that really sort of dominated all the movies that had to do with archaeology up until Indiana Jones. Um, right. Until Indiana Jones, all your archaeologists were sort of these pasty-faced, tweedy academics who were always getting themselves in trouble. And more often than not, they, they were dying, too. There, there are a couple of movies, for instance, The Mask of Fu Manchu, where an archaeologist sets out to find the, the tomb of Genghis Khan. He has to get the tomb before Fu Manchu gets to it, or otherwise all hell will break loose. Uh, and, of course, he falls into the clutches of Fu Manchu, and it's up to Sherlock Holmes' nephew, who... <laughs> name is Nayland Smith and is in the British Intelligence Service to go to China and uh, bail the archaeologist out. It doesn't work out, but the archaeologist dies. But uh, but that's sort of a, a theme, that archaeologists fat needing to be sort of pulled out of the fire. See. There's a John, famous John Wayne movie, Legend of the Lost, where he plays a an adventurer type who uh, gets hired by an archaeologist to go find a lost city in, uh, in Libya, actually, which, which actually was filmed... Uh, on location, they filmed um, le- the, the movie's Legends of the Lost. It's 1957, and um, it's got some great shots of actual Roman ruins hmm. uh, in northern Africa. So if, if anyone's looking for sort of actual sites in films, that's, that's a great one to, to look at, I think. Legends of the Lost. Uh-huh. And do you believe that mo- movies are portraying archaeologists in a fair way, or is, does it romanticize it somewhat? There, there's absolutely no question that every movie I've seen that has an archaeologist in it sort of romanticizes it. I mean, it, I mean, movies always gloss over complexity, especially right. where the science is concerned. So, so, so you never see scenes of archaeologists, you know, screening dirt or counting beads or doing all the stuff that they normally the do. The mundane stuff. Um, although there is there is one movie that we can talk about later that that centers on a fundraising, which is an important part of being an archaeologist. Right. Um, but doesn't really get get much attention for obvious purposes. But you know, d- does that hurt or help? I I don't know. I mean, um, as far as a being romanticized. I think, I mean, archaeology can use all the publicity it can get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a discipline where you, know, you go into it, you don't uh, don't get a whole lot of money. I mean, it, the, the pay is pretty bad. Right. Um, and sort of as a as a recruiting tool, I think movies like Indiana Jones are really great. Um, I mean, anything that can get people interested in the past uh-huh. is, is, is a great thing. Uh-huh. And Indiana Jones is great. For, I mean, I saw Indiana Jones and I was at an impressionable age. It's also one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I, I think it has to be possibly the greatest movie ever made, um, the first one. 
but yeah, so so I saw it. I was already interested in history, but that sort of for me kind of cemented my desire to, to go into archaeology. And I'm not alone. I know a lot of other archaeologists who are uh, roughly my age who uh, who are really inspired by Indiana Jones. It's right. Silly as it may sound. So, right. So I mean, it's a good thing I think um, to have these movies out there. That's not to say there aren't any pr- problems <laughs> with the way that archaeology is depicted. I mean, mm-hmm. For instance, Indiana Jones, he tends to, um, as great as he is, he, he drops into a place, goes into a tomb, gets an artifact, and leaves. There's no, even in the 30s, early to mid-30s, which is when Indiana Jones is set, all the techniques of archaeology are already in place, you know, looking at stratigraphy, mm-hmm. recording artifacts, their relationship to each other, mapping the site. Mm-hmm. All that stuff was sort of already de rigueur, and Indiana Jones doesn't do any of that. Okay. Which, which makes him, uh, on one level, no better than, than a looter go to a site and, and... Not so professional, huh? Exactly, and, and, and take it and then, and then sell it. I mean, Indiana Jones' saving grace, of course, is that he's taking all these artifacts to be um, to displayed at, at, at a museum, right? Uh-huh. Which, um, which takes them no questions asked. Is that the right. Marcus Brody, his friend who runs a museum back in the States, said mm-hmm. about the artifacts. He would, he'd take them no questions asked. Uh, you know, Laura Croft today also does, sort of does the same thing, you know, bops around the world, picking up artifacts without regard for, you know, the context or anything like that. And, and on one level, you have to say, you know, those are, they're just movies. I mean, can they really hurt? But especially now, I mean, you see what's going on in Iraq, with widespread uh, looting of sites mm-hmm. um, in the countryside, and antiquities trafficking, you know, increasing, not, not decreasing. Um, archaeologists are really trying to educate the public about this as a problem. And, and movies like this don't, don't really help. I, th- I think the uh, Asia edition of Times recently, they were talking about looting in China, and people hire uh, tomb raiders, basically, digging exactly. up tombs, taking out pottery from the Tang Dynasty, and then uh, you know, selling on Sotheby's like, a couple months later. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a global problem, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and places like China, which have such a rich history, I mean, it's especially a problem. You know, there are not enough archaeologists. There's not enough time to get to all the sites. And, you know, people who need the money do, and uh, it, it's a big problem. You know, <laughs> broader than the scope of our conversation today, probably. But, right. Um, so, in terms of like artifacts, there must be tons of stuff which is in private collections because it was looted or uh, illegally obtained. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we have no idea of the scope of the problem, really. I mean, um, I, I think, you know, particularly collectors in America and Japan will oftentimes even commission looters to go after specific artifacts. In a sense, that's kind of what Indiana Jones does. You mean it encourages um, that sort of practice? I'm sorry? You think the movie encourages that sort of practice? Well, I don't know that it encourages it so much as it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't flag it as a problem. Oh, I see. You know, and, and I think, again, it, it, you know, it's just a movie, but it, it's not really helping the efforts of archaeologists to mm. uh, educate people about this. Maybe in the next one, when I know that... Uh, Next, you're going to start filming uh, the fourth Indiana Jones, which right. we're all terribly excited about. Um, maybe they will actually address looting as a problem. I, I expect that since Indiana Jones will be a little older, even though he did drink from the Holy Grail at the end of the last movie, <laughs> the theory makes him immortal, right? Right. I, I, I'm sure he'll be slowing down a little bit, and um, maybe they'll take some time to actually show him at a site mapping in some sherds or something mm-hmm. you know, incredibly prosaic. That would be nice to see, especially since he doesn't have any Nazis to beat up on. Yeah. Not sure what they're going to have them do, but it, it would be nice to see that. So, are there any uh, are there any books or articles that uh, that address these issues today? Oh, uh, you mean antiquities looting? Right. Just about every issue of our magazine, actually, Archaeology Magazine, has something uh, in it, either about a particular case of looting or about legislation that's being passed. I think uh, you know the internet's a great resource too. And there are lots of organizations that are, you know, dedicated to you know, stamping out looting, although they've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
UNESCO is one. I'm sure you can find plenty of information about antiquities trafficking there. And actually, an upcoming issue of our magazine, we're going to have a, uh, an interview with uh, Michael Bogdanos, who was um, in charge of the investigation in Iraq into the looting at the National Museum. Right. And he... Uh, he addresses these issues right on. So were, were the media reports of these looters uh, accurate, or were they exaggerated? Um, you know, and it, the, the, the looting at the, at the National Museum seems to have been uh, exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that they've gotten an enormous amount of artifacts back. I see. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite the catastrophe that it was you know, feared initially. But what's going on in the countryside at actual sites... There's no way to regulate that. There's no way to kind of exaggerate the problem out there. I mean, mm-hmm. There's no security, so people are uh, are free, basically, to, to loot, at the, loot at will. So so it is a pretty serious problem. Again, I don't see any movies being made about that anytime too soon, um, which is a shame. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add? So uh, everything I said today, I, I'm not... Exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, not exaggerating. I, mean, I don't want to demonize Indiana Jones. I would like to recommend one movie, though, if I might, if we have time. Oh, sure, sure. Um, Please. The movie's called One Woman or Two, mm-hmm. and it's a French movie from 1986, and it stars um, Gerard Depardieu okay. as an archaeologist and Sigourney Weaver as uh, as, as a model. Um, that's not all that important, but the important thing is that um, it is at, it's this you know French, you know, sex comedy farce romp kind of thing uh-huh. but it's about an archaeologist and about a, a find of an early hominid in France and it's the most accurate depiction of archaeology I've ever seen you know just it's faithful right down to all the details um, you know they throw in a little jargon it doesn't thr- slow down the movie at all um, it's a really terrific movie and, um, and I would recommend it to anyone who is interested in seeing how archaeology can be uh, portrayed in the movies without Sacrificing the earth's military. Uh-huh. One woman or two. One woman or two. With Gerard Depard and Sigourney Weaver, speaking French, actually, in the movie. That's a great. Okay, well, Mr. Powell, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Goss today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking to Eric Powell, associate editor of Archaeology Magazine. For more information on archaeology, you can check out his website at www.archaeology.org. This is Berkeley Groxy listening to you here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out how Angel Fall got its name. So stay tuned.
much there, Mr. Uh, Lingan. And here's the big question. You know, we had a question last week, which was, golly, you know, we got these angel falls down in South America. They're really big falls. Man, big waterfalls. I was just wondering, I was walking around going, man, them's big falls. But the big question was like, well, why the named Angel Falls? I thought I was like, well, it looks like an angel might have been here, but it's not. The big question was, there was a guy named Angel who didn't come around and said, hey, these are pretty cool falls, and that's why I was named Angel Falls. Okay, thank you, uh, Cowboy Bob. And now here's uh, Tokyo Kid with uh, this week's uh, question of the week. If I want to walk from uh, North Pole down to South Pole in a straight line, the shortest distance uh, across through the land, uh, how long would it take? What is the this is distance? If you know what this uh, length is, or you think you know, then uh, email us at uh, grogs at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't do anything. But you will travel a little bit shorter. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. Bye.